Hello, friends. Welcome back to the podcast where we talk about whatever comes to my mind. And this is season two, so this is going to be like eight episodes of one consistent thing that's on my mind. And can you guess what it is? Probably not, because I didn't give you any hints. Um, This season's going to be about true crime. Whoa, yeah, so fun, yeah. So I recently got, for Christmas, a true, or no, sorry, a Barnes & Noble gift card. And I went there this weekend and I looked at the books and I saw some true crime books and I thought I would share them with you really fast. Um, and yeah, so one of them is a book about a mystery. So it's one mystery. And then the other is a series of unsolved mysteries. So it's like 50 unsolved mysteries in one book. And I was just going to open up to a random page and share it with you um so yeah um the first one is called the mystery of mrs christie it's by marie benedict um and i wish i could show you the cover uh so the cover is it's got a lady's side profile on it and there are pink leaves covering all over it like it they're on it and they're covering it but it's like they're scattered so you can still see the lady in the background um, but you can't really see her eyes because there's a leaf covering it and she's got brown hair. And the very, very background is uh, a navy blue and she's got this brown coat on. And that's it. That's the that's the cover. Um, it's a novel. Um, and let me read the back to you because I just I I saw this originally at Costco and couldn't get the couldn't get it. So I went to Barnes and Noble and got it because I was like, this is so interesting. Um, all right, I'll just read the back. Agatha Christie's own history may be her greatest mystery of all. Uh, oh, that's not the right. Oh, hold on. Sorry, I'm a mess. Let's look on the inside. Right, that's where the summary is. Um, it was $27 at Barnes & Noble, by the way, so if you want to go check it out, you totally can. Um, here we go. Here's the summary. In December 1926, Agatha Christie goes missing. Investigators find her empty car on the edge of a deep, gloomy lake. The only clues some, are some tire tracks nearby and a fur coat left in the car. Strange for a frigid night. Her husband and daughter have no knowledge of her whereabouts, and England unleashes an unprecedented manhunt to find the up-and-coming mystery author. Eleven days later, she reappears, just as mysteriously as she disappeared, claiming amnesia and providing no explanations for her time away. The puzzle of those missing 11 days has persisted. With her trademark exploration into the shadows of history, acclaimed author Marie Benedict brings us into the world of Agatha Christie, imagining why such a brilliant woman would find herself the center of such a murky story. What is real and what is mystery? What role did her unfaithful husband play and what was he not telling investigators? And that is the summary of the book the mystery of mrs christie um it i haven't started it yet but just from like the summary like doesn't that sound good um yeah i just i thought that was phenomenal so um i'm gonna read you the first page and maybe you'll like it and maybe you won't but this maybe will help you decide if you do or don't so give me a second to um work that out Okay, flipping the pages. Okay, part one. Chapter one, the manuscript. August 12th, 1912. Oogbrook House, Devon, England. I could not have written a more perfect man. 
Lose your dance cord, a voice whispered to me as I passed through the crowd and onto the dance floor. Who would dare say such a thing, particularly since I was on the arm of Thomas Clifford, distant relation of my host, Lord and Lady Clifford of Chudley, and quite the focus of the unattached ladies at the Oudbrook House Ball. Impertinent, I thought to myself, even rude. I imagined the scene if my dance partner had overheard him. Even worse, imagine if my dance partner was the one, our fate, as many friends and I like to describe prospective husbands, and had been distracted from his attentions. Still, a frizzin passed through me, and I wondered who, who would hazard such impotence. I turned into the direction of the voice, but strains of Elgar's Symphony Number no. 1 began to play, and my partner pulled me out to dance. As we waltzed, I tried to identify the man from among the throngs lining the last ballroom floor. Mummy would dance would or sorry mommy would ch- chastise me for not focusing my attentions upon the young mr clifford but from rumors i knew that the eligible well-connected gentleman needed to marry an heiress and could have no legitimate interest in me anyway i was nearly penniless with only the inheritance of ashfield villa to offer an estate many would consider a curse rather than a blessing particularly since i had no funds to support it and the villa was in constant need of repair and that is the first page of The Mystery of Mrs. Christie. Um, I haven't read the first page yet, so I kind of wasn't expecting it to start off like that. But uh, that was ki- that was kind of interesting, I guess. Um, yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll keep reading it. Maybe I'll drop it. Who knows? Um, I don't read very many. Ooh, sorry. I don't know if you heard that, but a bunch of books just fell. I'm kind of trying to put the put back and it's not working um I haven't read very many mystery books just because I I just have a difficult time picturing it I don't know I just like I think mysteries should be left to be told like I want to hear a story and I want to hear the emotion someone has when they tell me that someone was murdered like I like that I don't know, it's just much more thrilling when someone tells me how something happened in great detail. Like, I feel like I can imagine it better and get the vibe better. But maybe I'm just weird. Um, maybe. Anyways, moving on to the next book called Unsolved Crimes. Let me just clean up real fast. I should be stopping this and then starting it again, but I'm probably not going to do that. So you're just going to hear me shuffling around a little bit. Okay. So this is Unsolved Crimes, Infamous Cases That Have Puzzled the Greatest Minds by Sarah Herman. Um, I don't know where this book came from. I actually stole it from my sister's room. So that's where I got that. It says it was only $10. Um, don't know where she got it. But uh, yeah, let's just open to a random page. Oh, this is the Axeman of New Orleans. Orleans, New Orleans. Sorry. So I'm just going to read it to you. Who was the Axeman of New Orleans? Date, June 1911 to March 1919. Location, New Orleans, Louisiana, Louisiana, United States of America. For one night in earlier 20... and Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm really bad at reading. But here we go. For one night in early 20th century New Orleans, jazz music blared out from bars and bedrooms across the city, not in celebration, but in fear. That's the introduction, so uh, here it is. The Axeman of New Orleans. 
I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. These words are believed to have been penned by the Axeman of New Orleans, a fitting pseudonym for a killer or two killers, who terrorized the, the Louisianan city in the early 1900s. The quote is taken from a, letter, from a letter that, if authentic, gives a brief insight into the troubled mind of the axe-wielding murderer. The police solved almost all of the 52 murders committed in New Orleans in 1910. Most were personal, committed by individuals known to their victims. Murder, murderers like those the axemen committed were virtually unheard of. But even if the letter was a hoax, the author got one thing right. In the case of the axemen, the police were foolish. After all these years, the Big Easy is no closer to figuring out who this demon was. The public's awareness of the Axeman didn't ramp up until May 24, 1918, when an Italian immigrant couple, Joseph and Catherine Maggio, were found bloodied and butchered in their bedroom. Their throats had been cut using a straight razor, and in the bathroom, bathroom or sorry, bathtub was the bloody axe that had done the rest of the damage. Their killer had broken into the house while they split, while they slept by cutting a panel on the back door. I just want to stop there for a second. Because maybe I'm just a little uneducated. But who has a panel on their door? Like what? I mean, I guess this was the 1990s. I was going to say just lock your door. But I guess maybe that's how they locked their door. I don't know. Anyways, moving on. Outside on the sidewalk, someone had written a threatening messages. Message, Mrs. Maggio is going to sit up tonight just like Mrs. Tony. Now, who's Mrs. Tony? Um, I don't know. Maybe we'll find out if I keep reading, if I, you know, ever stop interrupting myself. Detectives thought that Mrs. Tony referred to was actually Mrs. Shamba. I'm so sorry. I'm literally butchering, butchering all of these, all of these names. Who, together with her husband, Tony, had been the victim of a similarly grisly attack six years earlier on May 15th, 1912. That incident had been the last of a spate of connected crimes during that period, which had been, which had seen grocer August Crudy and his wife struck by a meat cleaver by a man dangling their money. They survived on the night of August thirteenth, nineteen ten, and Joe D- Davy losing his life after an intruder's brutal cleaver assaulted him on June twenty sixth, nineteen eleven. His pregnant wife, who had been beside him in bed that night and had been struck across the face survived to tell the tale. If the 1918 to 1919 killer was a different man, as many people believe he was, his blood just his bloodlust was less satiable than his precedents. In June on June 28th, a month after the Maggio's death, a Polish couple, Louis Basumer and Harriet Lau, were injured in a similar attack. Basumer survived, but Lau died from her injuries on August 5th. That same day, Edward Schneider returned home to find his unconscious wife lying in a pool of her own blood. Fortunately, she survived to tell the tale of an axe-wielding phantom who had broken into the house and attacked her. How did she survive that? Like, imagine... Okay, I just want to... Let's put this in perspective. You are... Who is this? Lau? No, Schneider. You're Edward Schneider, and you're coming home from a long day of work, and you're like, honey, I'm home. And then you walk in, you see your wife laying unconscious on the floor in a pile of her own blood, and you're like, oh my god, like, are you you okay? Like, you run over and you help her, and then I guess the police come, and she gets to the hospital, and she lives? Like, how... 
maybe I'm watching too much Grey's Anatomy, but like, oh my god, like, I feel like that's kind of, that's crazy that she survived. Well, I mean, I guess it is good that maybe she, that she was able to tell the tale of this axe-wielding murderer. Maybe she could give us some insight into who he was, what he did, maybe his background. I don't, I don't know. I guess, I guess they just didn't get anything from her because it's unsolved. But that's kind of interesting because there's a lot of victims here who survived and I don't, we still don't know who it is. Anyways, that was kind of random. Um, where was I? Right. Then on August 10th, 1918, 1918, Joseph Romano, an elderly man living with his two nieces, woke to a tall man dressed in a slouch hat and dark suit slashing at him with an axe. He died from two gaping wounds to the head after being rushed to the hospital. So this sounds like the axe man is like dressed up in this fancy suit with a hat and he's coming at you with a with a butcher knife and he's butchering people or whatever it is, an axe. Um, I like the contrast there. Very artistic. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm not praising him in any way, by the way. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not praising him. I'm just, I think that's cool. How, or like, that's kind of ironic that he's in this like fancy suit and he's killing people and like getting blood all over it. Like, that's not something you would expect a man in a suit to be doing. Um, but, you know, I guess he goes against odds. Anyways, moving on. Next section is called The Letter. By March 14, 1919, the Axeman had been responsible for six similar home invasions, which had resulted in eight murders and ten victims with serious injuries. So that's ten, ten victims. victims. So in my head, that means that ten people survived and eight died. Hmm. So you get ten people that have seen this man and lived, and you still can't figure out who he is. Anyways, in many cases, the attacker had used his victim's own axes or weapons against them, leaving them behind. For those who survived their ordeal, the memories of the mysterious murder were vague and the police were no closer to catching him. Oh, that answers all my questions. Hmm. Okay, that just, okay. It was on this date, four days after the latest victim had lost her life, that the New Orleans time Picune newspaper received a rather unusual letter claiming to be from the Axeman. They have never caught me and they never will, read the letter. The author went on to describe himself as not a hum er, sorry, as quote, not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. End quote. It was a warm it was war it was a warning to the people of New Orleans who might have thought the ordeal was over. Quote, when I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. End quote. So that kind of sounds like he's working for the devil. Like maybe he's a devil worshiper and he is doing this work for the devil. Like that's, that sounds reasonable, right? Well, maybe it's not reasonable, but that kind of like that's my theory right now that he's he's satanic like he does satanic rituals and satan told him to kill people and bring them to him and that's what he's doing um or maybe he is the devil himself i don't know interesting interesting we're not done yet this is not over um let's keep going 
The author declared that on the following Tuesday night, he would pass, or sorry, he would, quote, pass over New Orleans, end quote, and that being found of jazz music, being fond of jazz music, he would spare all those who blared out the sounds of jazz. So that's why people were blaring jazz music. That's that's interesting. I feel like I've heard of that before. Uh, maybe I have heard of this case, but it doesn't. That's the only part that sounds familiar. Those who didn't would quote get the axe end quote. No one faced the axe man that night, but many people did blast jazz music or go to clubs just in case. Next session. Section is called Grocer Grudge. In 1919, there were four more Axeman incidents. The last of these was the death of Mike Pepitone, who on October 27th had his face turned into an, into an un, or sorry, into an quote, unrecognizable mass, end quote. After the perpetrator smashed into it using an iron bar, Pepitone didn't own an axe. Many of the Axeman victims, including Pepitone, were grocers and members of the city's Italian immigrant community. That's, that's, I feel like that's an important detail. Like, maybe this guy has something against Italian immigrants. Like, it is 1919, and Italian people weren't really quite accepted yet, um, I'd say. Um, maybe I'm wrong. But I feel like during this time, people were discrim- or being prejudiced towards them. So maybe this guy was part of that and was like, we need to get rid of all of them. They're dirty. Kill them. Um, I don't know what the grocers has to do with anything, though. Like, what does he have against people who own grocery stores? That doesn't make sense to me. Um, but none of this makes sense because it's unsolved. Anyways... In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, many Italians had been brought to America's deep south to labor in the cotton fields. Okay, next page. But their work ethic and their commitments to living on very little soon saw many of them save enough to go into business for themselves, often as fruit and vegetable vendors, leaving behind the poverty suffered by many poor black and white families. So maybe, so that's a little controversial there, because... Well, not controversial, good for them. They're getting jobs, they're doing work. But that that idea is still here. Like in modern day America, people are set at immigrants who are taking jobs from them. And I feel like it's the same mindset with these Italians who used to be really poor and are working their way up and are finally getting enough money to start a business and make money for themselves. And they're leaving behind these other poor people and more people are going poor. Like that just, that seems like enough incentive for a crazy man, maybe not crazy, but like for someone who is, who doesn't like Italians, like that's more incentive to hate them. That's the right word I was looking for. No one's crazy. I, I, anyways, by the early 1900s, when the Axeman was terrorizing the city, Italian grocers were dominating the corner store industry. It is widely believed the killer was either a white laborer who was jealous and angry at these newcomers who were doing so well or a vengeful burglar who had been sent to jail after robbing an Italian store. That's exactly what I said, except for the second one. Like, I totally just guessed this. Wow, I'm literally, I'm so smart. Look at that. Anyways, moving on. Of course, the Italian connection has led many to theorize that these were not random home invasions and murders, but deliberate mafia hits. Perhaps these grocers were refusing to pay mafia bribes and their deaths were enacted to send a, cr- a message to others. 
So it's got to be, I feel like I should mention that the mafia was pretty big during this time. Um, and, you know, the mafia is, uh, they'll get you. If you don't give them the money you owe them, they'll get you. And um, maybe the, what, what the text is saying is maybe the Axeman was doing work for the mafia. Um, maybe. Um, okay. The city was not a host was not host to a sophisticated criminal underworld, but gang crime was rife and vendettas between a different Italian groups were usually settled outside of the law, with many immigrants reluctant to go to the police. How- However, the brutality of the Axeman's killings wasn't in line with the strict mafia code, most notably the fact that women and children were harmed in some cases, and the use of an axe instead of a gun or a bomb was not in keeping with these gangland crimes. So th- so the pattern doesn't match up. So maybe it was mafia work, but the gunmanship is or the weaponship is just not there. Like the unexplained unexplained killing spree of London's Jack the Ripper, the dark days of the Axeman will never be forgotten by New Orleans. Today the jazz loving demon who walked who stalked the streets at night is much is as much part of local folklore as his British counterpart. But for the victims and their families who survived these harrowing attacks, it's likely the police's inability to solve the crime and bring them the justice they deserved would have been most uh, would have been almost as painful to bear as the injuries they suffered. Hmm. Um. And that's the end of it. There is a little section called "Strange Suspicion," and I'll read that to you. A year after Mike Pepitone was murdered, his widow, Esther, now living in Los Angeles, shot a man she saw on a sidewalk and then waited for her own arrest. When police picked her up, she reportedly said, quote, He was the axe man. I saw him running from my husband's room. End quote. The man she sought, Doc the man she shot, Doc Mumphrey, had several aliases, including allies or allies. I think aliases including Leon Manfra and Frank Mumphrey. Over time, his identity has become intertwined with a man named Joseph Mumphrey, who served a number of prison sentences in New Orleans. Around the time of the second batch of Axeman killings, it's widely thought that these two men could have become the same person, and the timing of Mumphrey's prison sentence seemed to support his theory. He was released from prison shortly before the 1911 murders, then incarcerated for seven years, only to be be released again in 1918, just before the Maggio murders. He left New Orleans for L.A. after Pepitone's death. Although there was no direct evidence to link Mumphrey to the Axeman murders, Esther was convinced enough to risk her own freedom to see him dead. In her trial, she was described as a hoodlum and a thief and sentenced to 10 years in prison. And that, my friends, is the story of the Axeman of the New Orleans. And that went a little longer than I expected. So uh, that is where I'm going to end it today. Next episode, we will talk about the Cleveland Torso Murders. I don't know if you've heard about that, but uh, here's a little sneak peek. Despite the efforts of one of Chicago's finest detectives, this murderer's rampage in 1930, 1930s Cleveland left a host of unidentified dead bodies and a police force baffled. Um, I have actually heard about that case, or about this case, and I'm quite excited to read about it. 
and inform you. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. You're just, you're probably hearing a bunch of uh, whatever is going on. Uh, I was just shuffling around trying to close the book and bookmark it. Um, but yeah, that is Unsolved Mysteries or Unsolved Crimes, Infamous Cases That Have Puzzled the Greatest Minds by Sarah Herman. Um, that was really interesting. I, I love Unsolved Crimes. I find it so interesting and spooky and i just i love the feeling of just being spooked and that 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 gets me that's pretty spooky if i do say so myself um but yeah that is it for today's episode um thank you for joining me to this week's or this season's theme is true crime um and i will remind you of the books that i read today the first one was the mystery of mrs christie that is about a woman who goes missing mysteriously no traces of evidence and then 11 days later reappears just as mysteriously as she disappeared with amnesia um that's pretty interesting i read you the first page and hopefully you like it and if you do go to barnes and noble pick it up and tell me how it is um and maybe we can talk about it in another episode when i finish reading it um And then the second book we read is Unsolved Crimes, Infamous Cases That Have Puzzled the Greatest Minds by Sarah Hartman. Um, You can probably pick that up on Amazon or in a Barnes & Noble. If you read any other interesting cases in there, let me know because I'm all about it. Um, And if there's any case you want me to talk about, I can totally do that. I can research it and all that. Um... I will tell you one of my greatest passions is the Zodiac Killer, so I do enjoy reading about him and trying to figure out who he is or who he was, even though I'll never figure it out because I'm just not that smart. Um, But I did read that they, so if you don't know, the Zodiac Killer, um, I forget where he was based, I think San Francisco. Um, He went around killing people and he would write notes to this newspaper, I forget what it was called, San Francisco Chronicles maybe? And he would taunt them like he was a confident killer and he would taunt them and all that. Taunt the police and the newspaper and all that. And no one ever figured out who he was. But these letters were encrypted. And he said, if you can um, figure out what some of these letters say, it has my name and identity in it. And so police have been working for like decades to figure out and decipher these notes that he wrote. And... um they ended up doing, they ended up deciphering one of his letters a couple, maybe a month back, I was reading about it, and I was like, that's so cool, like, and then reading it, it was, it didn't reveal his identity, but, um, that would have been cool if he was like, this is my name, um, but yeah, um, I don't know if you guys have seen that meme that Ted Cruz is the, um, zodiac killer because there was someone survived one of his attacks and they gave the police a composite sketch and the composite sketch has been around for for since it came out of course and people have linked it to look like uh ted cruz and uh yeah it's an entire joke now that we're like ted cruz is the zodiac killer we found him like even though it's not possible that he's the zodiac killer probably wasn't even alive it just is interesting and funny uh, but yeah, I thought I'd mention that that's my favorite case. Um, I don't know why. I just like a good unsolved mystery. Um, I'm also obsessed with Ted Bundy. I'm not obsessed with him. I just like the case a lot. Like I love, I love that case. Um, but yeah, that's it. I'm so sorry. I'm rambling. Uh, don't forget 
don't, oh, sorry, don't think I forgot about the song recommendation of the week. Ah, um, this week I have been listening to on repeat. Get ready for it. You're going to be like, you're so basic. Like, why are you listening to that song? It's actually really good. Not as sad as everyone says it is because I've listened to sadder. I've cried to sadder songs. I don't know why everyone's so teary-eyed over this song. It's called Driver's License by Olivia Rodrigo. Um, She was in High School Musical, the musical, the sequel. Or High School Musical, the musical. I think it was the sequel. It's a show. It was the show version of High School Musical. Um... And, um, she wrote a song, her first song was, um, I forget what it was called, but it was like, all I want is love that lasts, is all I want too much to ask. I know my singing's horrible, but I don't know what the song is called, so there you go, enjoy my singing, isn't it awesome? Yeah. Um, but yeah, she came out with that song. It was a huge hit. Like everyone loved it and everyone was going around singing it. It was trending. It was all that. And so just a couple weeks ago, she came out with, um, driver's license and it's, it's, it's a sad song, but I promise you there's sadder songs. Anyways, I will play it at the end of this. Um, maybe you'll get a kick out of it. Maybe you'll enjoy it. Um, unfortunately I can't link it, but go, go get it on Apple music, stream it on Spotify, YouTube, all that good song. Um, there's some drama going on around it with Sabrina Carpenter and, uh, I forget his name. The guy, uh, mm, Joshua Bissett, that's what it is. Joshua Bissett. There's drama between the three of them. It's like a love triangle. Um, bunch of teenagers, of course, but, um, but yeah, that's it for today. I should stop rambling. Um, I really hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did, let me know and give me some recommendations for cases I can go over because that's the theme of this season spooky um but yeah I should end it now I'm so sorry I hope you have a wonderful day night evening morning whatever is going on wherever what time it is whatever time it is over where you are I hope you're having a great time um eat well sleep well do good things be good people make good choices goodbye